The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Let me ask you a question. What do you want to be when you grow up? Now, you're not too old. You're not too old to have that question, I promise. You may feel too old, but you're not. It's still relevant to you no matter what your age. I'm sure there's, not maybe, there's maybe not a, a single question more central to the life of a child in modern times than that. What do you want to be in your life? What do you want to be? What is going to be your identity? I wanted to be two things. I wanted to be a policeman or a candy store owner. But <laughs> that sold nothing but penny candies. Because there was this store where I grew up in central Ohio called Carmazzi's, and he sold nothing but penny candies. And I said, someday I'm going I'm to make the world a happy place. I'm going to do the same thing. But whatever I did, whatever profession I had, I knew I wanted to do one thing. I wanted to carry a briefcase wherever I went. <laughs> and so I'm sad to say none of my dreams have come true. <laughs> none of my dreams have come true. But one of the, one of the most, think about it, one of the most prevalent ambitions in, in modern times is, is the goal of finding one's true self. One of the most prevalent, it's one of the most prevalent, uh, most important motivations in our lives. So what are you going to be? Who are you? What is your identity? What do you want to be when you grow up? It's, it, what's your one true aim in life? It's often what motivates us to climb that corporate ladder. It's what motivates us to take the job that we take or to fill our schedules with, with endless activity or where we will live or not live. It's it, all the things that are motivating all those ambitions is, well, what, who am I and what do I want to be? What's important to my life? And when our life matches our ambitions, if, if our life matches what we hope it will be, we, we have a sense of joy and satisfaction. We feel that we have done a good job in our life and we've accomplished much. We feel there's self-worth, but think about it. If your dreams of what you want to be in your life, if, if what's happening in your life right now don't match up to what you hoped it would be, there's often a sense of discouragement and a lack of self-worth. Or you deal with this disappointment by just lowering your standards, right? You cope with that pain of not being who you hoped you would be by just lowering your expectations in life. All this might be a little too psychobabble or psychology for you. I understand that. But by psychology is actually exactly what Jesus is talking about in this passage. When Jesus says here in verse 25, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He's using this Greek word psyche, where we get the word psychology. He's not talking about the physical life, merely just the time between our birth and our death. Jesus isn't talking about this period of time between our birth and our death. He's talking about the person's truest identity, the person's truest self, the person's truest aim and motivation for finding who they are. What is psychology but the research of the human experience, embracing a person's true self? That's what the study of psychology is. And Jesus says, do you want to find your true self? Do you want to know who you really are? Not just in the span of birth to death, but, but who you were meant to be. Do you want to know who you are? Do you want to know the meaning of your existence? Do you want to know the secret to finding your true self? the greatest and most fulfilling expression of who you are, then die. That's what he says. Then deny yourself. Then give up your life and follow me. Not what we expect. Not what we would expect to hear from Jesus. Not what we expect and not what we expect in modern psychology. In fact, it's the opposite of that. Instead of saying, deny yourself, give up yourself, we hear, embrace yourself, love yourself. What do you want to do? Fuel that. Who do you think that you are? And Jesus says, 
you want to find who you are, then die. So what is this passage about? It's about the key to finding our true self. And Jesus has the answer. This is so great. You guys came, I'm so glad you came on the great Sunday. I mean, you're going to find the answer to the most important question in the whole world. Who are you? What is the point? Why are you here? Who are you? What is your true self? And Jesus has the answer to finding our true self. And he says, take up your cross and follow me. That is the answer to finding who we really are. But what does that even mean, right? Because that's hard. I could just say that and we say, that's the answer, guys. Just go and do that. But what does it mean? We need to figure out what does this mean. When we understand it, when we understand what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me, we, we will know the difference between Christian immaturity and Christian maturity. We're going to know the difference between what it means to find our life and to lose our life. We're going to know the difference between having security in our life and knowing that we belong to God, we're in his care, to being vulnerable, insecure, and not knowing who we are or what to do. There's a lot at stake, and Jesus has the answer. I could just jump into this, this, this great saying, this troubling and confusing sentence, and spend time there, and we will get to that, but we need to understand the context. We need to understand where is this coming from? What is Jesus saying, and why is he saying it at this time? Because Jesus has this, it's a serious call to discipleship, isn't it? This serious call where Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. It's, it's heavy. It's serious. He's calling us to, to a deliberate act of discipleship where we we put our life in his hands and change our life so that we can follow him. And we need to understand the context. Here's the context. Here, the disciples learned that Jesus would suffer. And his suffering would be necessary. He would suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders, he says. He would die. He would be resurrected. And he says, these things must happen in verse 21. Do you see that? Jesus is saying, all of these things are going to happen not by accident. They actually must happen this way. It's not based on just circumstance. I didn't fall into this trap. Jesus has actually been talking about this for a long time with his disciples. He said, I must die. It must happen in this way. And Peter says, no way, Jesus, you can't die. And, and Jesus looks to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. He tells him, you're a temptation to me, a stumbling block to me. Jesus said a lot of harsh things to people. This is the worst. He doesn't call anybody Satan. This is the worst thing that you can tell a person. He calls him Satan. Just a few verses prior, which we preached through uh, several, several months ago, several weeks ago, Peter confesses Christ as the Son of God. He says, you're the Son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the one that has come to save me. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you. Blessed are you, Peter. God is speaking to you. God is changing your heart on, on you, Peter, the rock. I'm going to build my church, Peter. I'm going to build my church on you. So Peter goes from being the rock to the stumbling block in just a couple verses. And it's in this context, within the story that Jesus teaches the great cost of following him and what it means to really find our true self. I want, if, we see the, if we see the true importance of what Jesus says here, we, we have to first see what's wrong with what Peter said. Because it seems like a heart, harsh rebuke, isn't it? Peter looks at Jesus. Jesus says, I'm going to die. And Peter says, no way. And he says, you're everything that's wrong. <laughs> you're everything that's wrong with this world, Peter. Why the harsh rebuke? We need to understand what's going on. So these are the two things we're just going to look at. Understand the problem with Peter's comment. We need to understand the problem with Peter's comment. And two, understand the true meaning of following Jesus and what he says. So look, what was so bad about Peter's comment? Why is his comment so incredibly bad? Poor Peter, right? Can we just... Can we feel bad for Peter for a second? 
poor Peter. This is not what you want to hear from Jesus. Verse 16, Peter hears nothing more encouraging that you can say to a person from Jesus. Jesus looks at him and says, you got it. You're doing good, Peter. I'm going to build my church on you, Peter. And the gates of hell won't be able to overthrow it. Nothing, the kingdom of God working through you, Peter, nothing is going to be able to overthrow it, not even the kingdom of Satan itself. And then in verse 23, you hear the worst thing that you could hear from Jesus. Nothing more painful that ever can be said to a person. You see this? We have these two things together. Just as a quick aside, God's tremendous love for us does not free us from his rebuke. God's tremendous love for us doesn't free us from his painful correction. That's what's happening here with Peter. He is loved. He is, is, he is, is the, the fingerprints of God are all over Peter. He has, he has opened his heart and mind to understand the, the secrets of the gospel. He is loved by Jesus. God will do amazing things through Peter, and yet he gives him the strongest rebuke that we see in probably all of Scripture. The mistake is so serious. What is it? Well, Jesus knows that he has to go to the cross. He, has to, he knows he has to go die to fulfill God's will. He knows it. It must happen. This is God's will. God's will for the life of Jesus is for him to die on the cross. And for Jesus to pursue his true identity and call, he would have to go to the cross. It was not by coincidence. It wasn't just even a, a tragic event that he didn't see coming. His crucifixion was central to his identity and his calling and his mission in life. His death on the cross was the whole purpose he was born. Jesus literally was born to die. He was born to die. And Jesus is telling his disciples, here's how I'm going to save you. Here's how I'm going to redeem and restore the world. Here's how I'm going to set everything right. Everything that has been held captive by sin, I am going to redeem and, and restore. Here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it through suffering. I'm going to do it through being betrayed. I'm going to do it through, through triumphing over evil and sin and death itself. And I'm going to take my rightful place as king over all creation by going to the cross and dying for you. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be like a lamb that is led to slaughter. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm going to give up my life for you and be killed. This is how the kingdom is going to work through me, you guys. This is how the kingdom is going to change the world through me. It's going to run through me like a train, and it's going to kill me. And Peter says, God forbid it. God forbid that happen. And Peter is saying, Jesus, you can be happy. You can have what God wants for you. You can fulfill God's plan for your life, but you don't have to do it his way. Peter's correcting Jesus' theology. Something that, an argument you're going to lose every day of the week and twice on Sundays. Right? <laughs> Peter's correcting Jesus' theology. Do you remember what happened right after Jesus was baptized in Matthew 3? I know it was a long time ago. Um, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted. Jesus was baptized. He, we hear the favor of his father to Jesus, and he says, listen to what this guy has to say. And then he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Satan says the same things to Jesus. Jesus, you can be satisfied. You can be famous. You can rule over the world in glory. You can accomplish, you can accomplish it all. Everything that you were born to do, to be king over all creation, Jesus, you can accomplish it all, and you don't have to die. You don't have to go to the cross. Jesus, you can be happy without doing what God has called you to do. Peter confesses Jesus as the Son of God, the title given to the promised Messiah, the one that would come and save God's people from their sins through giving his life. He would redeem his people from the curse of sin. He would defeat our greatest enemy, which is death itself. He would become the suffering servant. And it's as if Jesus is 
is, it's as if Peter is saying this, and I want, I, want you to hear, I want you to hear this because it's serious. He's saying, Jesus, you can be all of those things without suffering, without dying, without giving up your life. Jesus, be true to yourself. Peter is saying, Jesus, just be true to yourself. You don't have to follow that way. We're still going to follow you. We're still going to love you. Just be true to yourself. It's the same temptation to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Eden. Eve, you can have all that God has promised to you. You can have life. You can have wisdom. You can have knowledge. You can have life itself, but you don't have to obey God's will. Eve, you can do it another way. Just be true to yourself. Peter is saying, Jesus, be true to yourself. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. A stumbling block to what? A stumbling block to being true to God. Peter, you're tempting me with finding another path, with, with, with deviating from God's will for my life to a life of comfort, to pursuing what I desire from God, but doing it in a way that God has told me that I can't have. Peter, you're, you're tempting me to disobey and to rebel the will of God who loves me and who's called me into this life. Being, your, being true to yourself, for that matter, then, is not just foolish. It's not just sad. It's demonic. Being true to yourself is the cause of, of international tension. Being true to yourself is the cause of relational abuse. Being true to yourself is the cause of gossip and divorce and lying and cheating and stealing. Being true to yourself is the reason why children disobey their parents. Being true to yourself is the root of racism and racial superiority. Being true to yourself is the reason of, of such acts of, of white supremacy that we see happening around our country and in Virginia this weekend. Racism isn't new, of course, but it bears repeating whenever necessary that racism is not only foolish and sad, it's demonic. It's opposed to Christ. It's opposed to his kingdom. It's opposed to following Jesus. Pursuing our desires, being true to ourselves, is not just something stupid and sad to do. It's demonic. It's the reason and root of every sin. You know, think of every, everything that's broken in this world. What makes you weep about this world as you, as, you, as you look through the news feeds and you turn on the TV, as you're listening to the radio in your car? What makes you sad about the world as it is? Behind every sorrow, behind everything that makes you weep, is someone being true to themselves. Every sin at its core is born out of a desire to get what God has promised to us, to get his, his promises and his blessings apart from picking up our cross and following him. The root of every sin is wanting good things that God has, has promised to give to us, but not doing it God's way. Avoiding that pain, avoiding that suffering of denying ourselves and thinking of ourselves, but still wanting that good. You see, for Jesus, wanting to be victorious in God's kingdom while, while holding on to his very life would be a direct act of rebellion against God. Do you understand Peter's rebuke now? What was so wrong with what Peter did? Do you understand it now? He didn't understand it at the time, of course. He just said, Jesus, there's got to be another way. But what he didn't realize is what he was saying was, Jesus, you don't need to follow God's will. Be true to yourself. He was saying the same thing that Satan said to Jesus. I will give you what you want. I'll give you what you desire. But you can get it through accomplishment, not through suffering. I'll give you happiness, and you don't have to sacrifice anything at all. 
I'll give you a sense of fulfillment in your life, and you don't have to submit to God. I'll give you the abundant life, and you'll never have to give up your freedoms. I'll give you victory over all of creation, and you'll never have to suffer. These are all the things that Satan said that Jesus could have. But Jesus is saying the way to power is through defeat. The way to life is through dying. The way to new birth is to give up your life. And I'm going to die because the way of God is for the kingdom to advance through my suffering, through my death, and through my resurrection. And here's the transition point. And if you want to follow me, it has to happen the same way with you. If you want to follow me, you have to do the same thing. Peter's demonstrating the essence of Christian immaturity. That we all, we all manifest this to some degree in our lives. If you're a Christian, there's, this is this Christian immaturity. I want you to see what it looks like. It, it, which believes wrongly that God loves us and therefore he'll never ask us to give up what we truly love. Christian immaturity looks like this, that Jesus suffered so that I won't have to. That Jesus went through such excruciating pain on the cross so that bad things will never happen to me. Is that your view of what it means to be a Christian? It's Peter's view. It's immature. It's thinking that God is so loving that he died and he, and he went through all that pain so that we, could be avoid, that we could avoid all of that pain. Jesus died so bad things wouldn't come my mind. Jesus, Jesus died so that my plans would happen just as I hope that they will happen. Jesus did not go to the cross so that you could just be happy. He went to the cross so that the kingdom of God would advance in us and through us in the same way that it advanced in through Jesus, through suffering, through death, and through resurrection, through rebirth, through his new life being born and bred and, and in us, and, and us, our new life being lived out of his life being lived in us. So if that, you want that to happen, you have to die. A grain of wheat does not bear fruit unless it goes into the ground and it breaks down, and unless it dies, can it be reborn. The kingdom of God is, is manifest in and through Jesus as he gives up his life, as he takes our sin, as he pays our debt for our very life, and he pays the price. He purchases salvation for us through his death. The kingdom of God is made manifest through you and I as we deny ourselves, and we give up our claim to our life, as we repent of sin, as we trust in Jesus, as we receive his salvation, his purchased salvation for us, and as we follow him. And so it's out of this mistake of Peter, it's out of Peter's mistake that Jesus shows us the true meaning of what it means to follow him, and therefore what it means to actually find our true self. You see how we, we needed to do that work? We needed to see Peter's mistake as it was. We needed to understand this key to the tr truly finding ourselves. We need to look at Peter first to see why the necessary rebuke. And so this is Jesus' call to you and I. He says, take up your cross. Take up your cross. Follow me. Look to me. Trust in me. Deny yourself. Trust that I've given you everything that you need. And follow my will for you. You know, many struggle with the Christian view of the cross, and I understand why. Because here's what, the Christian, here's what the Christian view of the cross of Jesus is. It teaches this, that our sin is so bad, that our sin is so bad and so deserving of punishment, that the only way that we could be forgiven is for God to kill his own son, for God to send his son in our place. So the cross, as we look to the cross, it's offensive because it says, this is how bad you are. This is the length that God had to go to to save you. 
It teaches us that unless Jesus takes our place on the cross, that God's judgment is still on us. It still rests on us. That, that burden of condemnation and God's wrath, it still hangs over our head. It teaches that Jesus came to pay the ransom for you and I that we couldn't possibly pay in order to secure our freedom. But the cross is an act of real love. It's an act of true love. And every act of real love has with it, it requires a level of sacrifice. Can you think of people that, that love you? Who comes to mind when you think about someone who truly loves you? And if you picture this person or these people in your life that truly love you, I promise what you're going to think about if I ask you, why do, why do you, they love you so much? Or what have they done to express that love? You will think of all the things that they've done to sacrifice for you. You're going to think of, well, they've expressed their love in this way. They've sacrificed time. They've sacrificed their energy. They've sacrificed their money, their sweat, their tears. They've sacrificed so much, their comfort in life to love me, and so I know that they love me because of their sacrifice for me. It makes sense that a God who is more loving than you and I, a God who came into the world to deal with our ultimate evil and sin, that he would have to make a substitutionary sacrifice. He would have to sacrifice for us and give up for us. Even the most flawed human beings understand that sin can't just be, be dealt with by being vanished. It can't just be forgotten. God has to deal with it. He deals with it by taking our place. He deals with it by becoming our substitute on the cross. God doesn't just shrug off evil. God can't say, you know what, on second thoughts, you're all forgiven. God can't say that. He has to deal with this evil. And he deals with it at the cross by suffering on our behalf. The cross teaches us that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever thought possible. So bad that nothing short of the death of God's Son could satisfy God's anger. And yet, at the very same time, it teaches us that we are so vastly more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever hoped or dreamed. Jesus didn't die so that you and I just wouldn't suffer. He died so that when we do suffer, the kingdom of God would advance in us, that it would change us, that it would make us more like Christ, that His glory, His goodness, His love would be, would be put on clear display, that it would actually change us at our core. And only when we realize what Jesus had to deal with in his suffering and his death on the cross, the real curse of sin, only then can we really know what it means to give our life to him. Only then are we ever prepared to actually lose our life for him. Because only then will we be able to stop working for ourselves, stop working for our own salvation. We'll live our life trying to earn our forgiveness through our accomplishments. Only then we'll be able to not do that and start to look to Christ and stop working to save ourselves, but trusting in him. When Jesus says, pick up your cross, take up your cross and follow me, he's ultimately saying this, look at the cross. Look at the cross and look at what I've done for you. And now live your life in every aspect as if you really believed it to be true. Look at the cross and live your life like you believe that what happened on that cross really is true. That you truly are loved. That you truly are accepted that you truly can stop working for your salvation. Do you believe, do you believe that Jesus has paid for your sins? Past, present, and future sins. However bad they are, do you believe that he's paid for your sins on the cross? Do you believe that you don't have to look beyond the cross for what you need? That you don't have to be insecure about your future or your present because you are worth everything to him and he has given everything for you. 
Do you believe that you never have to hide behind your sin because of fear? Fear of God's judgment, fear of God's ridicule. That you don't have to look beyond Jesus for his love to find out who you really are. Do you believe those things? All those things are, are just broadcast on the cross. A denying of self, a giving up of our rights, and submitting to God's claim on us as his blood-bought children is not only a prerequisite for being a disciple of Jesus, but a continuing characteristic of it. That's what Jesus calls us to. It isn't just, here's how you get into the kingdom. Look to the cross and trust in me. He says, this is how you grow in the kingdom. This is how you grow as a follower of me. It is this continual characteristic of following Jesus, denying ourselves, trusting in him, living out of his perfect work for us on the cross. You want to find out who you truly are? You want to find the truest sense of who you are and what makes you valuable? We look to the cross. We give up our life. We trust in him. This is how we find it. He says, whoever wants to find, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will find it. This is that great reversal. It's this great reversal that Jesus offers. He says, live for yourself and you'll lose your life. Lose your life and you'll actually find it. He turns the world upside down. He is saying, what he's saying is so simple. How do we typically go about finding our life in this world? How do, we, how do you lie? Just think about it. How do you go about finding your value, finding your worth, finding your life? You, you do it by gaining the world. Getting that job, getting that relationship, having freedom, all the things that the world has to offer. If you had all of those things, say, well, if I gain the world, then I am somebody. But pursuing these things to find our life will result in losing our soul to the troubles of life because no job, no possessions, no relationship can save us or give us what we need. But to live for Jesus, to say yes to Christ in the midst of everyday life, that's when we really find it. Has saying yes to Jesus ever caused you to sacrifice time or money or comfort or opportunity or reputation or convenience? What has following Jesus cost you? If your answer is, you know what, I'm not so sure, there's a good chance you're not carrying your cross. There's a good chance you're not following Jesus at all. Have you ever taken it on the chin for Jesus? Have you ever said yes to Jesus and no to the world because you, because you love him? Because you know what he has done for you and you've decided to follow Jesus, to give your life to him, to deny yourself? If you're thinking, you know what, I could deny Jesus right now and not much in my life would change. What, what, what incentives are we given? We're given tremendous incentives here. In this rebuke and in this great word from Jesus, this great invitation, we're given great reason to do it. First, we're given the cross. Jesus says, look at the cross. Do you want a reason for doing this, for giving up your life? Let me give you three reasons, like in, three, in a couple sentences. Look at the cross. Why give up your life? Because you can stop working to save yourself. You can stop working to accomplish God's love. It was given to you freely on the cross. Do you want an incentive to stop working for, to save yourself? Look at what Jesus did. He died for you. What else? Look at his example. Why give up your life? Because Jesus has called us to follow him, and he says elsewhere, he says, no servant is above his master. If you want to follow me, then what will come in your life, what I've called you to, is not going to be any less than what God has called me to. A life of service, a life of sacrifice, a life of self-denial, a life of submission to God and trusting in him and obedience in him. He pursued the cross and he got the crown. 
But is it really, think about it, is it really sacrifice if we're giving up everything to get everything, to get what's mostly important? Remember the parable of the, the pearl of great value and the, and the treasure that was hidden in the field? Do you remember those two men? It says they found that treasure, they sold everything they have, they went and bought that thing, and then they, rejo- and they rejoiced in, in being able to give everything up for it. So the question is, are they really sacrificing everything by giving up everything to gain their life? It's not a sacrifice. It's a joy-filled pursuit of the life that really matters. But finally, here's the incentive. Jesus says, here's an incentive to give up your life. is the judgment of God. The seriousness of discipleship is indicated by the coming judgment of Jesus. The incentive of avoiding God's judgment. If we do not give up our life, if we love ourselves, we love our life, if we pursue the world, we will be so far from God. His judgment still rests on us. If we are not if our allegiance to Jesus is not more than just a casual, mild confession, if it's not of handing over our life to him, then he doesn't know us. You know, as we grow as, as Christians, we grow in the Christian faith, we learn that following Jesus, this has been my experience, that following him is very different than what I thought it would actually be. I, uh, following him is, is different than what I imagined it would be when I first began to follow him. There's a way to love your life so much that it will reveal how far off you are from actually following Jesus. It happens when things are taken away from us. We realize, wow, I thought I was following Jesus. I thought I was a Christ follower. But now my life is, my life is, is upside down, and I don't, know, I don't know where to find my comfort. I don't know who to trust. I don't know what it even looks to follow Jesus. It happens when your plans are threatened, or, or that's when you see how far off you've drifted from Jesus. Here's, here's, here's a question for you. When... When did you begin to define greatness in your life from the vantage point of your accomplishments rather than the vantage point of Jesus' grace? When, when did it happen? Maybe that's going on right now. When did it happen that you're start, when you're thinking about your value in life and who you are and what is important based on the vantage point of what you have and what, you've, what you possess and what accomplishments you have had in your life rather than God's grace was poured out, poured out for me on the cross? Why is your life important? Because Jesus believes you're so important, he would give everything for you. Why is your life important? Because there was nothing, there was nothing less than him giving his very life that he would do to secure a relationship with you. What if we started to look at the value of our life based on the vantage point of that, the vantage point of the cross, rather than what we have or what we do? I see this every day in the world. I see it in my life. I see it in my kids' lives. How they are, they are trained in this world to look at their life and their value based on a vantage point of what they have. And, and it's, I don't even know if I'm helping or hurting the situation. My daughter comes to me. My, my four-year-old daughter comes to me. And, and I say, Kate, you're so beautiful. And she says, sometimes. And I was like, what do you mean? You're beautiful all the time. She's like, well, sometimes when I have my pretty shoes and my pretty dress. And right there in my mind, I think, this is the moment. This is, I'm going to say, the most beautiful, gospel-centered thing that's going to change her heart forever. And I miserably fail, right? I don't, it's like, this is the moment that I have to, to retrain her, and to let her know that her value is not in those things, but is the value in the grace of God. How do I do that? I stumble through it, and I'm sure I fail, and I'm sure I'll get many more opportunities to do that. But you know what? We don't really grow up. It starts maybe when we're three or four, but I don't know if, I don't know if we've really grown up too much from that. We live from this vantage point of, well, sometimes I'm, sometimes I'm beautiful. Sometimes I'm valuable to God. When I'm doing things right, when I'm obeying Him, sometimes I'm, 
Sometime my life is valuable. That's all to say this. Are you aware? Are you even aware of how the world is defining what it means to live the abundant life? And how that's compared to how Jesus defines the abundant life? Are you even aware of how you are being trained by the culture to live your life to gain the world rather than giving up your life to gain your true life? It's scary. Jesus means to scare us, so much so that he calls Peter Satan. He says, this is scary, Peter. You want your life? Do you want to, do you want to find your life? Do you want to find who you truly are? You have to follow me. You have to give up your life. A real life, a life worth living does not flow out of the things that we accumulate or the things that we do. A real life flows out of Jesus' death and resurrection, the power of God's kingdom working in and through us as we choose to follow him, deny ourselves, and be obedient to him. If we understand the cross, we will be propelled into a life of joyful humility, saying, my life is not my own. It belongs to God. Body and soul belongs to Him. I am secure and okay because of that. Not because of what I have. And you know, when these disciples heard Jesus say, pick up your cross and follow me, we look at this and we think of it probably first figuratively, right? I don't think anybody in here said, man, I gotta, I gotta die. Physi- I gotta physically like, be crucified. I think we think of it figuratively. But these disciples, these first century Jews, first, they're thinking physical. They're, they know they're, they're thinking, they're hearing Jesus' words and they're thinking they have to die for him. And you know what? Every single one of his disciples would except John. Everyone would die a martyr's death. Everyone would be killed. Everyone would literally give up their life. And few of us, or, or, or any of us, would actually be called to give up our physical life for Christ. But we may. But we're called to give up our life on the altar of God. Our cares, our dreams, our, our, our ambitions. We are called to deny ourselves and to carry our cross. We do not sacrifice or help people to give up our life because of what we, because we have to. We carry our cross because we genuinely want to. With a new motivation through the Spirit of God working in us so that we will resemble the one who gave up everything for us. Let's pray.